Mark chapter 6, we're going to begin here at verse 1, where we read, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Jesus is touring around the region of Galilee with his disciples, and now he makes a return visit to Nazareth, his hometown. When he comes back, you might have think that they would have greeted him with a ticker tape parade. The red carpets rolled out for Jesus and his disciples to come into town. After all, he's become quite well known in the Galilee region. But it's not that way at all when Jesus comes back. As a matter of fact, when he comes back, he he arrives, first of all, if you notice in verse 1, it says, and his disciples followed him. I wonder if that didn't set some people on edge right there. Because Jesus left Nazareth as a retired carpenter. He hung up his carpenter's tools and he closed his carpenter's shop, or maybe he turned it over to one of his brothers. And he said, God's called me on a mission here and I'm going to go out and fulfill it to his glory. And he comes back with an entourage. If you ever notice in the world of entertainment, celebrities and sports stars always travel around with an entourage. It makes them feel important. It makes them feel protected. You know, there's a group of people following them around everywhere. And I wonder if maybe some of Jesus' hometown people, when they saw him arrive, as it says in verse 1, with his disciples following him, I wonder if they didn't think, well, who does he think he is? He leaves here, a humble man, and now he's got followers. But not only that, it wasn't just that he had people with him, it's that he had disciples. This meant that Jesus was a rabbi who was schooling people in ministry. You know, in that day they didn't have formal seminaries or theological schools, so the way that you went to seminary in that part of the world was you attached yourself to a teacher, a rabbi that you would follow around as a disciple. And you would learn from him. That's exactly how Paul learned his business, being a rabbi in Judaism before he came to Jesus Christ. He was attached to the famous rabbi Gamaliel. But Jesus now has his own entourage. He comes into town, and when he teaches on the Sabbath, everybody's astonished, it says there in verse 2. It says, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Now, it's not a bad question to ask. Jesus, here's your, 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 your teaching and your followers and just everything about you. Where did all this come from? Unfortunately, they jumped to some bad conclusions. And you see this in verse 3. Notice how they speak to Jesus, beginning at verse 3, where they say, Is this not the carpenter? Now, friends, that wasn't a compliment. I'm not trying to imply that there was anything dishonorable about a carpenter's trade. But what they're pointing out is that Jesus is not a formally trained rabbi. It's as if they're saying, well, where did he go to seminary? He's just a carpenter. He never went to Bible college. He's just a working man. He was never the formal disciple of a rabbi, much less a prominent rabbi. Who does he think he is? It's kind of interesting because um, occasionally the question will come up to me. Somebody asks me, so where did you go to seminary? And I'll say, um, I didn't go to seminary. 
They'll say, oh, well, where did you go to Bible college? I didn't go to Bible college. Then usually I'm feeling kind of awkward, and I'll I'll point out, well, yes, I, I do have a bachelor's degree from the University of California at Santa Barbara, which is pretty well acknowledged as being one of the premier party schools of the West Coast. <laughs> of course, I never lived on campus or anything. That was never a part of my life in any way. But, you know, it's not like having a degree from Harvard or Yale or anything like that. And I explained to them, I, I have no formal biblical education. None. I, I'm, I'm self-taught, if you were. Now, sometimes when I talk about that, it it comes off to people that I don't think education is important. And I think that would be a very wrong conclusion to draw. Ladies and gentlemen, if a man is going to be in the ministry, if he's going to stand behind a pulpit and bring the word of God to people, he had better be an educated man. And he'd better work hard at his education. And seminary may be a wonderful place for him to receive that education. A Bible college may be a marvelous place for him to receive it. I just think that it's not the only place. And I believe that I'm an educated man in the Bible and in the things of God. It's just God had me take a little different route. But you have every reason to expect that the person who's in the pulpit should be an educated person. And whether it's through a Bible college or seminary or some other way, well, whatever it is, they need to be educated. What I think is interesting about this is they pointed out that Jesus did not have that kind of education. He was just a carpenter. And somehow they thought that that might have discredited his message. You should know that especially in the early years of Christianity, people used to criticize Christianity because it was founded by just a carpenter. I mean, think about it. You could say, well, you know, their their religion, a plumber started that religion. Or something like that. You think, well, what's going on with that? You think it puts down the faith in some way. I read a very interesting story about in the days of ancient Rome when there was a terrible persecution against Christians by the emperor Julian. At that time, a philosopher mocked a Christian, and he asked the Christian, well, what do you think the carpenter is doing now? And he tried to mock him, the fact that Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, was a carpenter. And the Christian very wisely replied, he said, I think he's building a coffin for Emperor Julian. (laughs) Well, Emperor Julian met it in glorious end. I think it wasn't a bad reply. At the same time, I can't get away from this idea that Jesus was a carpenter. I mean, when you think about it, he could have been anything. He could have been anything in the great plan of God. He could have been anything according to his own choosing. I mean, God could have ordained that the Messiah, when he came to earth, he could have been a farmer. He could have been a shepherd. Don't you think that would have been a good job for the Messiah to have? He was a shepherd. No, he didn't choose to be a farmer. He didn't choose to be a a, a shepherd. He didn't choose to be a fisherman. He didn't choose to be a merchant or salesman. He chose to be a carpenter. You know, I think that says something very beautiful about the nature of God. It says that our God is a builder. And God's a really good builder too, isn't he? You look around at our created world, you see the most majestic mountain, and you say, God knows how to build things. And then you break it down to the smallest molecule, and you look at the intricacies of the design and structures of that molecule, you say, our God knows how to build things. Then you take a look at our lives. You say, God is in the building business in our lives too, isn't he? You know, except with the the created world, the mountains and the molecules, God started from scratch. With our lives, he has to do a remodel job. 
He comes to our house, as it were, as if we're the ultimate fixer-upper. And he says, we've got to change some things around here. We've got to fix things up. He just say, okay, well, Lord, what are you going to do? You know, and sometimes he comes to a room and he just repairs it and fixes it up. Other times he takes a look and he says, you know, this whole wing of the house, it has to come down. I have to destroy this wing. Oh, no, Lord, can't you just throw up some wallpaper there? No, no, no. He says, I know what I'm doing. It has to come down. And as a wise builder, God loves to build things in our lives. I think that as Jesus was a carpenter, he learned things as a carpenter. I think one of the things that that God the Father taught God the Son as God the Son worked as a carpenter is, is I think he taught him that there's a lot of potential in a log. Can you imagine a big piece of wood, a felled tree being delivered to Jesus on a big cart there at the carpenter's shop? And Jesus looks at that big log and he thinks of all the potential that's in it. He thinks, well, you know, there's a plow in that log. There's a, there, there's a yoke for some oxen. There's some boards that can be sawn to, to frame out a house. And I see in that log, I see a beautiful piece of furniture that can adorn a home. And as Jesus thought of these things, I think, I think he learned, he learned deep in his soul that you can look at something very rough and, and there's a lot of potential in it. Aren't you glad that God looks at us the same way? You might just be a useless old log before God. But he looks at you this morning and he sees what he can make of you. He sees all the glorious things he can bring out of your life. You're not useless to God, even if you don't feel very useful right now. But you know, Jesus also learned in that time that it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of time to make something usable. You know, good carpenters don't work all that quickly, do they? It takes some time. You know, when you're, when you're young and when you're impetuous and doing that kind of craftsman, you try to rush through every job, you, you get a little older, you get to be good and a real technician in your craft, and you see those guys, they don't move so quickly. They work slowly and thoroughly, and they produce the best kind of stuff. You know, if you want the carpenter to do a good job at your house, you better be prepared for him to take a few days, and that's how God's work is in our life, isn't it? Oh, we sit around, and we say, well, God, aren't you finished yet? Come on, let's go. You know, we get the job done. And he said, oh, this is, a, this is a difficult job. It's going to take me some time. And it takes work, too. I think there's a third lesson that Jesus learned from being a carpenter. I think he learned that the finest things are made from the hardest woods. As Jesus looks at our life, he says the same thing, right? Oh, some of you are hard wood for God to work on. But you know what? He can make the finest things out of you. When a, when a carpenter wants to go and he wants to make the excellent furniture, the really great cabinets, he chooses the hardest wood he can. Not because it's easy to work with. No, it's the most difficult to work with. But he knows that's going to be the most glorious thing there. God knows the same thing in our lives. But in any regard, when they said this in verse 3, is this not the carpenter? They did not mean it as a compliment. In the same way, following up next in verse 3, they said the son of Mary... Now, we're not sensitive to it because we're removed from it in the language, in the culture, but that was also a slap at Jesus' face because it was very uncommon to refer to a person as a son of his mother. You always refer to him as a son of his father. They would have said the son of Joseph, but they're making a slap at Jesus. It's not exactly like saying he's a mama's boy, but still it's a disparaging remark. They're criticizing Jesus. They're putting him down. There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of contempt behind those words. 
If you notice at the end of verse 3, it says, and they were offended at him. Isn't that odd? These people who should have been so close to Jesus, the ones who saw him from beginning to end, they should have known very well that Jesus was what he said he was. I mean, there was not a single tradesman there that, that Jesus ever cheated. There was not a single person that he ever worked for in that town that ever came out on the short end of the deal. There was never a creditor that Jesus didn't pay. There was never a shop owner that ever had trouble with Jesus when he was a little boy. Every one of them knew his life, yet it didn't make them embrace him when he was older. Maybe they were too familiar with Jesus. And I would put that in in parentheses, of course, too familiar, because I don't think you can ever really be too familiar with Jesus. But in a way you can. You think you know all about Jesus. And so you shut off your ears to really learning who he is. And when these people saw Jesus come back, they said, oh yeah, we know Jesus. He's the carpenter, good man, we like him. But a prophet, but a rabbi, but the Messiah, we didn't know that Jesus. And so they had just enough knowledge about Jesus to think they knew it all. May we never be in that place. It must have hurt Jesus being offended and, 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 uh, or having the people offended because of him rather. But look at his reply here in verse 4. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. First of all, Jesus will not allow the rejection of his own countrymen to debilitate him in ministry. He approaches it philosophically. He quotes a proverb of the day, and he says, A prophet's not without honor except in his own country. That's just how it works. So often the people that are closest to you will, 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 will reject you in this way, so he won't let it debilitate him. But the second thing, if you notice there in verse 5, is that he would do no mighty work there except heal a few people. Isn't it amazing? The unbelief of these people limited Jesus. Now, they didn't limit him in the absolute sense. It wasn't if Jesus really wanted to do a miraculous work among them. But no, he just couldn't. His hands were tied. Oh, I want to, but I can't. No, it was out of the decision of his will that he could not do any work among them. Because Jesus wouldn't answer their unbelief in that way. Friends, it's interesting that God sometimes will work with no belief. But he will rarely work with unbelief. And you know, there's a difference between the two. No belief says, God, I just don't know. I want to believe, but I can't. It's just not there. Unbelief says, I don't think you'll do it, God. I don't think you can. Unbelief is a negative. No belief may just be a neutral. I think it's also significant that Jesus would not sort of amaze the crowd into believing him with miracles. I think that might have been my temptation in this case. Oh, you reject me, do you? Offended because of me, are you? Well, I'll show you. Blind man, be healed. And then I'd say, well, what do you think about that one? Bring me another. Deaf man, you're healed. And I would have done it just to show him, well, you know, hey, you smarty pants, reject me, will you? Look at who I am. You know, Jesus wouldn't do that. He was willing to be rejected of men if that's what they would do. So I said, fine. So the first thing is he accepted it. The next thing was that he was limited. He would do no mighty work among them. But if you notice in verse 6, the third thing, he marveled. He marveled because of their unbelief. 
It blew him away. He was amazed. It's very interesting that we never read that Jesus marveled at art or architecture or even the wonders of creation. We never read that Jesus was amazed at the beauty of the world around him or he marveled at any of those things. He he never marveled at human ingenuity or invention. He he didn't marvel at, at the holiness of the Jewish people or at the military dominance of the Roman army. But Jesus did marvel at faith. Twice we read of Jesus marveling. And the first time was when he marveled because faith was present in an unexpected place. That's when the centurion came to Jesus with great faith, and Jesus marveled at the faith of a Gentile man. You wouldn't have expected to find such faith in a Gentile, but Jesus saw this faith in an unexpected place, and he marveled because of it. But here we find Jesus also marveling at faith because it was absent where it should have been. These people should have believed him. They had reason to believe Jesus more than any other. That faith should have been there, but it was not, and it blew Jesus away. Friends, I want to know this morning, does Jesus marvel at your faith? Maybe he marvels because your faith is present in an unexpected way. You know, with all the difficulty you've had, with all the attack, with all the pain, you're still trusting God. And people would look at you and say, well, that's, that's remarkable, that's wonderful. And Jesus marvels at your faith because you're hanging in there in unexpected circumstances. But maybe it might be the other way. Maybe Jesus would look at your life and he'd look at the lack of faith and he'd say, why? I mean, haven't I proven myself enough? Haven't I come through time and time again? Haven't I given you my word? Haven't I given you my promise? Haven't you seen my working in your life time and again? How is it that you don't believe me? Let's make Jesus marvel in the right way with our faith. Well, Jesus was not going to step back from his work just because he was rejected by his own countrymen. Instead, we find in verse 7 that he broadens his work. It says, And he called the twelve to him and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he also, he said to them, In whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I think Jesus is realizing that the end is in sight for his ministry. He can look down the road and say, I don't have many more months of being able to minister, and there's an urgency about the work. He knew. He knew that there were the, the, the religious elites and the political elites had conspired against him. They were plotting his murder. And now he saw that his own countrymen weren't even supporting him. So he says, the time is short. I can't be in more than one place at one time. Let's send out a team to do the work in a broader way. Isn't that the glorious thing about our ascended Lord Jesus? When he walked this earth, he could only be in one place at one time. If Jesus was in Nazareth at a certain time, he wasn't in Capernaum or he wasn't in another city. That was the limitation of him taking on human flesh. But when he ascended to glory and sent out his spirit, now Jesus can be everywhere at the same time. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is here. 
And he's not just here. He's gathered in every gathering of faithful Christians across this city. Jesus is there too. And in every gathering of Christians across this nation, all over the world, when they come together and worship, Jesus is there. But when he was in his human flesh during the days of his earthly ministry, it wasn't like that. So he sent out a team of disciples and he said, go two by two to these different places and do what I would do there. And so they went and they preached and they went and they brought healing and the power of God. I thought it was very interesting there. If you notice in verse 13, it said they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Isn't that interesting? The only place that we read in the Bible other than this about anointing with oil to heal the sick is in James chapter 5 where it speaks about calling the elders together to anoint with oil that the sick may be healed. I think that's a very interesting picture for us for two reasons. First of all, it's a picture, of course, of the Holy Spirit coming upon that person consistently throughout the scriptures. Oil is an emblem or a picture of the Holy Spirit. And so when somebody comes forward for prayer here at Calvary Chapel and they want to be healed, we will very often anoint them with oil. Oh, we don't pour a big bottle of oil over their head, although that's the way they often did it in biblical times. We take a little smudge of oil with our thumb and we'll put it on their forehead and what it is, it's a picture, it's an it's a emblem of saying, Lord, we want you to pour out the Spirit upon this person. And in obedience to a passage like this in Mark chapter 6 and in James chapter 5, we say, Lord, we're anointing this person with oil. It's not the oil as if it were a magic potion, but it's an emblem of the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God can miraculously meet this person's need. So, Lord, we anoint them with oil. But what I find interesting about this is that there may be a double meaning here. Because also in the ancient world, anointing with oil was a medicinal practice. Ancient Greek and Roman doctors said that oil was one of the best instruments for healing diseased bodies. And they would often give a sick person a rub down with olive oil because they thought it was a very helpful medicinal treatment. And I don't know if it helped them, but it sure made them feel good. And so what we may be having before us here, it says anointed with oil, many who are sick, it may talk about giving them proper medical attention as well. You know, the two do not exclude each other. God's miraculous healing and medical treatment are not enemies, not at all. And every once in a while, you'll you have somebody who comes along and they say, well, God healed me, I don't need to go to the doctor. Well, we will encourage them to go to the doctor. Not because we don't believe God worked in their life, but number one, we know that God often brings healing through doctors. It's a beautiful thing. But secondly, we say, well, great, if God's miraculously healed you, then go to the doctor and let it be a testimony to him. Let's get it documented because God's work is always faithful and true and go ahead and have it demonstrated before the doctor. But my point is, is that the two don't contradict. I think there's something else very interesting about this. It's their preaching. Did you notice that? Verse 12 says, So they went out and preached that people should repent. Well, what does it mean to preach? You know, the word simply means to proclaim, to tell others in the sense of announcing news to them. And in this sense, we preach all the time, don't we? If you're there and you, you say, Well, I want to announce to you that, that uh, people are going to meet for lunch at this restaurant after service. You're preaching. You're making an announcement. You're announcing news to people in the sense of what the biblical word preach means. You're preaching. You know, and if you just think about it in those terms, every one of us is a preacher. Every one of us should be preaching God's message. 
You should be announcing to others the good things that God has done in your life. You know, when you talk to somebody, when you talk to your coworker tomorrow morning and tell them, you know, let me show you something wonderful that God has taught me. You're preaching. You're announcing something good from God. And it's a beautiful thing. You're proclaiming that. But I really want you to latch on to this truth, folks. Some of the very best preaching that happens never happens inside of a church. It happens when you are one-on-one speaking with somebody else. You're a preacher. And God wants you to be a preacher wherever he puts you. A preacher in the best sense. Not that you're thinking up sermons to assault friends and co-workers with. But that you're announcing the good things that God has done in your life. You know, and that's a sermon that you preach to people that I'll never reach. God has put people in your circle, whether it's family or friends or co-workers or whatever. You have a circle of people that I will never reach. And so you come here on a Sunday morning, you get equipped, and you get sent out so that you can announce good things to other people. And you know what? Your message should be just what their message was. Look at it, verse 12 where it says, And they went out and preached that people should repent. Now, I know it sounds like it means that their message was just, Repent! You think of the guy with the sandwich board walking up and down the street, right? Repent, it says. That's not the idea at all. It's not that their message was repent, but that was their goal. That was their motive. They preached in such a way to bring men to repentance. And so it means that they preached the love of God. It means that they preached about his forgiveness. It means that they preached that the kingdom of God was here. You don't have to go around to all your friends and shout at them, repent. Go around to your friends and tell them about the love of God. And that'll draw them into repentance. Tell them about God's mercy and about what Jesus did on the cross for them. And that'll draw them. Preach with the goal of bringing them to repentance. But tell them about the great love and mercy of God. That's how he brought you to him, isn't it? That's how God will draw others as well. Well, so the disciples went out and it was a great work. But I want you to see what happens next at this other transition point. If the disciples were out doing their work, And there was another faithful disciple who had completed his work. And we read about that in verse 14. Now, King Herod heard of him, that's speaking of Jesus, King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet, or or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Now the scene shifts. The camera pans back and fades away from Jesus and the disciples. And it goes over to a palace on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea, a palace that you can go today, where this particular King Herod, one of the sons of Herod the Great, that person who was king when Jesus was born, this King Herod gathers in his palace and he worries because he gets reports of this man Jesus. And other people come to Herod and they say, well, what, who do you think this Jesus is? And some, well, I thought Jesus was Elijah. He's a prophet announcing the coming of the Messiah. Well, I think he's one of the other prophets. But, but Herod thinks he knows who this Jesus is. He says, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. They say, well, why would he ever think such a thing? That Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead. I mean, Jesus and John were at the same time. It's not a rational thing to think. Oh, but you see, this King Herod is way beyond the rational His mind is tormented by guilt because he's the one that put John the Baptist to death 
And every night when he goes to sleep and closes his eyes, there's the face of John the Baptist. And then maybe it kind of morphs into the face of Jesus. And he can't get it out of his mind because his conscience is tormented by the fact that he killed John the Baptist. And so we stand back and say, Herod killed John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist ever do? And Mark says, I'm glad you asked that because he's going to explain it here beginning at verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. You see, this King Herod was involved in a sordid family affair. He was a married man. He had married the princess of a neighboring kingdom. But he got tired of that wife, and so he divorced her. He abandoned that wife, and he started living with his brother's wife. Terrible situation. And so there was sin on all accounts. There was sin back in his brother's family. There was sin in Herodias' family. There was sin when the two, Herod and Herodias, came together. It was a terrible, sinful situation. And look at what had happened here in verse 18. For John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For John, excuse me, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Isn't this interesting? You have a very strange relationship. We have the prophet John boldly, fearlessly speaking out against the sinful conduct of this wicked king. He says, it's not lawful, it's against God's law for you to have your brother's wife this way. Now, you wouldn't think that Herod would have just said, well, off with his head, but he didn't. Herod was strangely attracted to this prophet. Oh, he he hated listening to him, but he loved listening to him. Maybe you're like that when you hear the word of God. It's a strange mixture. You grit your teeth, but at the same time you like it. You're attracted to it. It's like the moth that comes to the flame, and the flame will singe the wings of the moth. At the same time, the moth can't get away from the flame. There's a strange attraction there, and that's how it was for Herod. He didn't know what to make of John. John rebuked his sin fearlessly, yet he knew that there was a goodness there and a power from God there. But there was no conflict in the wife of, Hero- in the wife of Herod named Herodias. She just wanted John dead. She said, this man makes me feel so guilty. I know how I can get rid of the guilt. I'll get rid of the man. And she wanted Herod to kill him, but Herod wouldn't do it because he knew that that John was a godly man, a just man. But Herodias knew how to manipulate the situation. Verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. The scene is vivid, isn't it? There they are at a big feast, a big banquet, and the the, the tables are sagging under the weight of all the food there. And they've had their entertainment. They probably had the lascivious dancers come in, but those were the paid professionals. Those were the women who were expected to do it, a little better than prostitutes. There they were, bearing their flesh before this gathering of men. But then comes in the princess. 
Herod's own stepdaughter, the daughter of his own wife, Herodias. And if you notice the emphasis there, it's as if Mark is amazed where he says there in verse 22, and when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced. Well, this is a princess. No upstanding woman at all would do this, much less a princess come in and dance this way before the men. It was extremely provocative and it was extremely immoral. And the men were so swayed by it, they were so enticed by the lewdness of this girl that Herod made her a bold promise. It's as if in the way a man might boldly tip an immoral dancer today, and he he did it in his own way, and he said, well, I'll give you anything you want. You just ask for it, and I'll give it to you. And then what happened next? The girl ran back to her mother, if you notice here, verse 24. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And the mother, calculating all the way, you see what she said in verse 24? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Well, she put Herod in a vulnerable position. Verse 25, immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, He did not want to refuse her, and immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and they went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. It's ghastly, isn't it, friends? This terrible display of immorality in this situation and the violence that it resulted in. Nobody comes out good. You have Herodias there, the wife of Herod. What a wicked woman. Calculating all the way, knowing that if she put her husband in this lascivious and vulnerable situation, she could get out of him a promise that he could not refuse. And so she did it in the extreme brutality and violence that she says she's not content to merely have John executed. She wants the ultimate vindication. He wants her, his memory to be disgraced. So just don't kill him. Bring me that head upon a platter. It's as if we're having a glorious banquet and this will be the next dish that will be served. So it comes upon a plate. Herodias, what a wicked woman. And then you have her daughter, shamelessly dancing, shamelessly being used as a pawn in this battle between her mother and the prophet John. A terrible situation of this lewd young girl being used, but then also willingly going along with it. But then, perhaps worst of all, you have the sad state of Herod himself. Did you notice what it says in verse 26? And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So the king went along with a murder that he knew was wrong. He knew it was wrong. He said, hey, you know, I'll lose face in front of the guys if I back down from this. And then he said, I don't want to cross my wife. I don't want to make it wrong before her. So he gave in to this and It's sad because we look at Herodias and we see her great wickedness and we take a look at the daughter and we see her great lewdness and you look at Herod and you see a tragic weakness. More than being cruel or wicked, Herod is just plain weak. And no wonder his conscience was haunted 
by the murder he committed against John the Baptist. Friends, God knows how to address these wrongs. You know, it wasn't long until Herod had to pay the tab for this sin. You remember that first wife that he divorced, the princess of a neighboring kingdom? Well, the king of that kingdom didn't like it that his daughter was mistreated that way. And so he sent a little army to Herod and they beat up on Herod and his people really good. And all the people around acknowledged that it was God's retribution to Herod for killing John the Baptist. But it didn't end there. Herod, because of his own arrogance and petulance, was called back to Rome and called on the carpet before the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor banished him to Gaul, what is today we call France, far off in exile. And there in the bitterness of exile, both Herod and his ungodly wife Herodias, they committed suicide. An inglorious end to an ungodly life. Friends, I think the greatest tragedy is that Herodias... This wicked woman thought that she could lessen her guilt. She could get rid of the guilt by piling another sin on top of it. There's only one way to get rid of the guilt, ladies and gentlemen, and that's to bring your sinful condition to the cross of Jesus Christ because he died on the cross to take your guilt. The guilt that stains your soul, the guilt that troubles you today, Jesus bore it on the cross. Why not give it to him in an act of faith? He died to set you free from that. That's why he went to the cross, to bear the penalty and the guilt and the shame of your sin. And every person here can walk out of this room a free man, a free woman. And you don't have to close your eyes at night and be haunted by the specter of your past sins. Jesus is here to set you free from that guilt. Won't you let him set you free? He has the key and he wants to unlock the door. Let him do it in your life this morning. Let's pray to that end right now. Lord God, I want to pray for, for us all this morning, Lord, first of all, that we would not be too familiar with Jesus and end up rejecting him in an unwise way. Secondly, Lord, I pray that you would free every one of us from the burden of guilt that troubles our souls. Lord, there's many here this morning and they rightly feel guilty because they've sinned. But Lord, you can set us free. We lay our guilt and our shame and the penalty of our sin upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And finally, Lord God, we ask that you send us forth in this room as your preachers. No, Lord, not with a scripted sermon, but just good news to announce of the work that you've done in our life. Please do it, Lord, for your glory and by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.